You know, in the past few years, I found myself having terrible reoccurring dreams. And the, the details and circumstances may always slightly vary, but the situation is always the same. I'm back in school, I have not prepared, and I have an important test to take. For me, that test usually has to do with math or science, which have never been, nor ever will be, my specialties or strong subjects. And invariably, I haven't studied for the exam. Maybe I didn't even know about it, or I haven't attended class all semester. But the consequences are always dire. If I fail this one test, I'll have to stay in school for a whole nother year. Where will I get the money? Where will I find the time? Failing means that my life is not going to go the way I thought it would. Failing would mean, for me, functionally, that life is over. Inevitably, I wake up despairing. What am I going to do? And then it slowly dawns on me that it was only a dream. And whatever I have to do for the rest of the day, nothing compares (laughs) to the pain of taking a test. So whatever chore or thing I have to attend to, not a problem, comparatively. It wasn't real, after all. I think it's kind of interesting that it's been many years since I've been in college and I haven't had to really seriously think about an algebraic equation or the interior structure of a a cell in well over a decade. And yet, so often, I dread the thought of being tested by them. So much so, I still dream about it frequently. Well, I I think none of us really like being tested, do we? I mean, especially in areas that we find are not our strong suits, in areas that we find ourselves weak. But the point of testing so often is to reveal our strength in some area. So, for instance, we wouldn't want a doctor or a surgeon who failed their anatomy test to be our doctor or surgeon. And none of us would ever get on the, the plane of a pilot who failed every landing test he ever had. We want somebody that has taken the test and has passed them, who's proven to be strong and durable, competent and resolved. But what about when God tests humans? What's the purpose of that? And what good does it ultimately do? And that's the question that our passage is is really digging into this morning. Now, remember from last week, we heard Israel's Song of the Sea. It's this beautiful poetic hymn about God's sovereignty and His power over every nation. Even Egypt, the, the great empire of the time. And yet it's also about His grace and mercy towards His own people that are oppressed by these world empires like Egypt. And all of this serves as as a climax to Israel's whole exodus story up until this point. The 400 and some odd years they've had of slavery is all finally meaning its end here in this moment. All of those troubles have led to this joyful freedom that they have. And they do the only thing that you can do in a situation like this. They rejoice in God's deliverance with wonderful, jubilant celebration. And that's what leads us into our text today. And here we are at the beginning of Israel's journey 
through the wilderness and into God's promised land. They know where their destination lies. The Lord has laid every one of their foes low. And He's provided for every one of their needs along the way too. And Miriam has just led not only the women of Israel, but the whole congregation in this near Pentecostal revival service of worship music and of dancing before the Lord. And the Lord who has annihilated every one of His and their enemies, who has pledged Himself to fight for His people, and who has been described as unlike anyone who ever has been or unlike anyone who ever will be. He is the center of all their praise and worship. But after a few hours of dancing and singing and playing, the echoes of their worship music slowly begin to die down. And they continue on in their march through the wilderness under the hot desert sun. And all of a sudden, that singing that they were just participating in becomes sighing as they press deeper and deeper into the wilderness and yet have no water to drink and therefore no life to live. Finally, they do come to a water source after a staggering three days without drinking water. Now, I'm sure there's probably been a day in my life where maybe I didn't have a glass of water, but for I can't fathom going three days without anything to drink. And so they come to this water source and they I can see them now fall to their knees and begin lapping it up like a dog. And the second it hits their tongue, they spit it out and gag. It's bitter water. It's non-potable. And so they call this place Mara, meaning bitter. Just like Naomi in the book of Ruth, after her life felt like a a, a rotten, stagnant mess. Said, Don't call me Naomi, which means sweet. Call me Mara, because my life is bitter. And so verse 24 tells us that they grumble. They grumbled to Moses, what are we going to drink? And truthfully, we'd be lying if we said we couldn't understand their complaint. After all, three days for most human beings is probably the upper limit of how long you can go without water without some serious health issues coming into play. And even death for some, perhaps. And God knows this. And so we can also sympathize with their dehydrated desperation. However, what we see here is the beginning of a repeated pattern, a seemingly never-ending cycle of Israel complaining so much. And often for such uh, situations that are not nearly as dire, it exhausts the patience of Moses at some point. It even exhausts God. And for us, the reader, we're like, come on, Israel, get it together. So we see throughout the, the story of these first five books of the Bible, they will complain a dozen more times before it's all said and done. Some of them will complain so much that they don't even get into the promised land. They just die in the wilderness. But just as Moses hears their complaints, and just as this is a, a beginning pattern for Israel's complaining, he then in turn cries out to the Lord, which sets up another repeating pattern. When Israel's in trouble or when they're just complaining, 
Someone turning to the Lord on their behalf and praying and the Lord always responding. We see that pattern just as much. And do you know how the Lord responds to Israel's complaints? How He responds to Moses crying out? The passage says He shows Moses a tree. The word uh, is used for show in the passage here. It's the same word we would get in other places in Scripture for law or instruction. In other words, when they needed life, God gives them instruction on how it is they can live. And how can they live? Well, it's by this tree. This tree which once tossed into this bitter water will soak up all the the dregs. Now commentators have wondered for centuries if this particular tree, which we don't know what kind of tree or what kind of wood we're working with here, if it has some natural properties that neutralizes the bitterness of the water. I don't know, maybe absorb some of that salinity that they have, the acidity that they're finding. Or if it was maybe just perhaps supernatural intervention, that this tree was just a symbolic uh, uh, gesture of God's power to provide for His people. Now let me ask you this. Do you think to people that are thirsty and a source of water now appears, do you think it matters one way or the other if this was natural or supernatural? Not in the slightest. Furthermore, I don't think the author of this passage would even recognize a distinction between a natural phenomenon and supernatural intervention. I love what the great German theologian Jürgen Moltmann says about Jesus' miracles. He says, they're not so much miracles in the sense that they're God's supernatural intervention. Making something in this world that would never occur. Jesus is just restoring the world to how it should be in its natural state. I think that's so true about when God intervenes. It's not so much that He's using magic to do something impossible, but rather He's putting the world back to the way He intended it to be. And so, whatever is happening here, natural or supernatural, the point is this. These people are saved. This water is drinkable. And it's because God showed Moses a tree that can allow these people to live. Now let me ask you this question. Let's think about this practically. Is it the medicine that you take that heals you? Or is it God? Does the surgery that you get stop the cancer? Or is that God? Is it the seatbelt that saves your life in a car accident? Or is that God? Is it the water you drink that rejuvenates your body, allows your cells to continue on? Or is that God? Friends, don't get it confused here. Every physical and spiritual, medical, financial, emotional, mental, or social help that we get in this life, although it may come from the hands of many different people, from many different sources, all of it ultimately comes from the gracious hand of God that provides all of it for you. See, God knows what all of us and each of us need to live. And Jesus reminds us that just as the Father takes care of the little birds and the tree and clothes the, the flowers of the field, how much more so will He love and care for His own image bearers for whom Christ came to 
live and die and rise again. How much more so will God care for us if He cares for even the smaller things in this world? And folks, as it turns out, we too are saved by a tree. See, the cross of Jesus Christ is planted into the bitterness of our lives. And it absorbs all of the sin and wrath and death so that through Him, through Jesus, we might drink this new and living water that comes from Him and that we might, tasting it, live forever. See, this is where the Lord first tests Israel. And He attaches this command to them in verse 26. He says, if you carefully obey Me, the Lord your God, if you do what I say is right, if you heed My commands that I won't afflict you in the way that I did the Egyptians because I am the Lord. Meaning, I am who I am. And He says this in in, in summary. He says, I'll be the one that heals you, not hurts you. That's the Lord's disposition towards His people. And so here the test becomes explicit in our passage. The Lord who, make no mistake, rescued Israel before they ever had a chance to act. He wasn't waiting for Israel to get their life together, for them to um, repent enough or do enough good works or believe the right doctrines. No, He intervened in Israel's life even when they had not acted. He worked in Israel's life Uh, before they even knew who He was. They had forgotten the God of their ancestors, but yet He never forgot them. And now now that He has rescued Israel, He is giving them the opportunity to respond in trust. Proving He's not coercing them to do anything. They're not like the Egyptians that will only um, respond to uh, to, to violence, to, to judgment. He's giving them the opportunity to, of their own accord, follow Him. And this is why we can say that God is truly just. That He isn't unfair or unrighteous at all towards His creation. Because when we, He created man and woman, He placed them in a paradise with all that they could ever want or need And not only did He give them all they ever wanted, but then He set them up to to rule and reign. To have dominion over all the plants and animals. To go out and multiply. To spread His glory to every corner of the earth. To to cultivate that garden from that one spot till it took over the planet. He gave them everything they needed and gave them a, a glorious future. Proving He wasn't some shallow trickster God. And He allowed them to act according to their own will and desire. Proving again that He's not going to just be the one that twists their arm. He's going to let them respond in faith and love. And so He places the tree of knowing. Knowing good and evil. Good and bad in the garden. They could have anything in this garden that they wanted. Any future was available and open to them. But just don't eat of this thing that will kill you. It's the only stipulation. But still, He lets them make their choice. 
And they chose their own glory. Their own wisdom. And even when He said, this will kill you, they chose death anyway. And here again, we find another test. It's not unsimilar. He is allowing Israel to have this same kind of life. A flourishing life under His protection with His full provision so that they, like Adam and Eve, can be a kingdom of priests to this world. He'll be the God that gives them their every need and He'll always heal them. If only they, like Adam and Eve, were given an opportunity, would listen to His instruction. That's why He instructs them where this tree was. To show them He will provide so they can trust in Him. And after all, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't these people trust in this God? Think about what He's done. His grace has liberated them from slavery. Again, when they didn't know who He was, when they had forgotten about them, He remembered their covenant, His covenant to their ancestors. And notice that God's salvation for His people who are in mortal danger is totally free and gracious. He didn't tell them uh, to come bearing money or anything. But now in the wake of their redemption, He's giving them a chance to respond and worship. He says, I'll be your healer, Israel. So will you remember all I've done for you? Will you remember the impossible situations that I've gotten you out of? Will you trust Me? Will you live not by water alone, but by the Word of God? And so He brought them not only to this one place, Mara, that's now got clean water, but just shortly after that, they come to twelve springs. A spring for each tribe of Israel. And there's 70 date palms there. It's a number that symbolizes to us completion, perfection. They have everything that they not only could drink, but everything they could eat from these date palm trees. Everything that's sweet and nourishing. Church, God has done the same thing for you, when you were an enemy of His, when you were at odds with His justice, when you were far off from His goodness, He came and sought you out. He liberated you from sin and its final and deadly consequences. And furthermore, He adopted you into His family to be one of His own. You belong to God who always will take care of you Now the question for you is, will you trust Him? Will you follow Him? Will you believe this Gospel for you? And so this is test one, we see. Test over water. But the next test we get to will be test over bread. We read that after several weeks in this oasis of Elim, of sweet Elim, the Lord leads them again through the wilderness of Seen or sign, which is short for Sinai. And what again do we read? Verse 2 of chapter 16. All of Israel grumbles against Moses and now Aaron as well because they were hungry. Now I think we're meant to see that although hunger is definitely an issue, it's not nearly as dire as the thirst they were experiencing. They had gone three days without water to drink. That's not livable. 
but in a in a, a big tribe of people that are wandering the wilderness that have goats and cows and livestock. It doesn't say that they're out of food altogether, but they're worrying that they will be at one point in the future. They're not sure where their next meal is going to come from. And yet they complain not only to Moses, but now also to Aaron. In other words, I think what we're meant to see here is that they have half the problem that they did before and they complain about it twice as much. What do they say? Verse 3 says, if only we had died, if only the Lord killed us in the land of Egypt, we could have died with meat in our belly, with bread on our tongue. We always had that there. Instead, you brought us out into this wilderness, Moses and Aaron, to make this whole assembly die of hunger. I see Israel just like us. They love to remember the good old days that were never that good to begin with. Remember when we were in chains? Remember when we were being whipped and worked to death? Wasn't it nice to have a few table scraps to eat? So here's the perfect opportunity for them. Here's the test. Not to grumble, but to trust. Not to complain, but to believe. After all, they didn't even have to look back too far in their past to see, hey, when we didn't have anything, God showed up miraculously and provided. But instead of passing the test, they fail it. Instead, they whine and complain and start coming up with conspiracy theories about how Moses and Aaron and God just lured them out in the wilderness to kill them. Now, if you were God, and it's a good thing you're not, it's a good thing for all of us, none of us are. Now, if you were God, what do you think your response to these people would be? Fire? Maybe a little bit of brimstone? Something to, to make them feel the weight of their doubt and their ingratitude. Especially on the heels of this condition that He just gave them. To trust Him and He would always heal them. That's what we, we know what we would do. Let's make a new Israel. It's even better than this old one. But what does the Lord actually do? What does the, the passage tell us? turns out that He is intent on showing them His amazing grace. When they complain and carp and moan about their problems and accuse the Lord of malevolence, this is what He says to Moses. I'm going to rain down literal, actual bread from heaven for these people. These people wonder what happens when their food supply runs out and I'm about to show them it never will. He'll give them food from the skies. And He also gives them another chance to pass the test. They just must trust Him. So He renews the test here. Okay, I'm going to provide everything. They won't even have to go searching for food. I will make it materialize out of thin air. They just have to go and pick it up and eat it. But here's the test. Will they trust Him and gather only what they need for that day? 
hey, he's even going to provide twice as much on Fridays so that they can take a day off on the Sabbath, on Saturday, having everything they need. In other words, there's no need to hoard. There's no need to be a doomsday prepper in ancient Israel. Just trust and obey. This is an easy test for them to pass. Moses and Aaron tell them this news. In verse 6, it says, since you've forgotten already, somehow, you're about to find out all over again who it is that brought you out of the land of of Egypt. It was the Lord. And six times in these next few verses, Moses brings up their complaint. Six times he tells them they've been complaining. Because what was the source of their problem? Was it God? Was it Moses? Was it Aaron? No. uh, Their own doubt, their own disbelief was their problem. And how will they find out just how wrong they are? Because in verse 8, Moses continued, the Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and in the morning He will give you bread. All the bread you could ever want because He's heard your complaints that you're raising against Him. Who are we? that your complaints are against us. They're not against us. They're against this Lord that's provided everything you've ever needed. When will you believe Him, Israel? So often, folks, this is our life of faith, isn't it? We look at the countless miracles in our life. We look at all the provisions and somehow we conjure up the audacity to call the Lord to account for the ways in which He provides to us. When He always has provided. Doesn't the Father of every good gift always provide for His needy children? Yes. And look how He provides in in verse 13. So, At evening, quail came and covered up the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface as fine as the frost on the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. And Moses tells them unequivocally, it is the bread that the Lord Himself has given you to eat. In the evening, the Lord gives them quail. Enough for them to have their own quail filet sandwiches every day. Or quail filet nuggets, maybe, if they like that better. And in the morning, He gives them manna. A word that ironically means, what is it? (laughs) It's a miraculous food. It's thin and light, yet filling and rich. And Moses summarizes what is before them. Look, Israel, it's the bread that the Lord has given you. When you thought you'd go hungry, look, the ground itself is covered with His provision. And today, Christian, I tell you the same thing as we come to this supper table. Look, it's the bread that the Lord Himself has given you. It's not like the bread that He gave to our spiritual fathers in the desert. 
It's bread that they ate and went away. Bread that would waste away as the day worn on. But this bread we read in the Gospels is His very flesh and blood. The bread of life. Of His own life. Broken for you. And here's your test today, church. Will you trust Him? Will you come to this table and remember that He has always taken care of you? And He always will. Now here's the even greater grace. Knowing how often we will fail this test of faith. Knowing how often we have failed this test of faith. This bread and cup prove that Jesus has already passed the test for you. See, He was obedient to the Father when you weren't. He was without sin when you were stuck in it. He submitted His own will to God when all you could do is think about yourself and what you wanted. And like Israel and Egypt, He saved you before you ever even knew it. And His cross is the thing that God has showed us that has made water of life sweet again for us. So church, as you come to this table, not in your own might or volition, knowing the problems of your past, knowing the doubts of this present moment, will you come and will you Trust Him. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to Your table this morning, help us now with faith and obedience to trust in Your boundless grace for us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.